Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Raptors Reason List Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Joining me on the line, Eric Kareen. Eric, what's up, man? Uh, not too much. Another uh, bizarre, weird week in the world uh, with some what we hope is good news. Uh, like, I, you know, even, you know, spoiler alert, the NBA announced plans to come back on uh, on Thursday. And we hope that's good news. But I don't know if anybody's sure that it's good news yet. Yeah, and I would probably use stronger language than bizarre and weird for the week oh, that was. Okay. Bizarre, weird, and bad, and trash, and terrible. Yes, those are those are some good descriptors. Um, to give you a heads up off the top of the podcast here, uh, in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Raptors 905 assistant coach and former Toronto police officer Charles Kissy uh, to discuss some of the things that are going on right now, uh, the protests across the United States and Canada and all over the world um, against police brutality and and for anti uh, against anti-black racism. Um, we're going to get to that. I realize that it's Um, A little weird to have a basketball news discussion taking up space from that conversation. Uh, I promise you we're going to give that conversation uh, as much space as it needs. But because this is um, a Raptors podcast and the NBA announced their return to play uh, plan on Thursday, we've got to get that a little bit off the top. So we're just going to do a couple minutes on that. And then we're going to bring Charles Kissy in. Um, We're going to try to you know, unpack and sort through some of not only what this means for the Toronto and Canadian basketball community, we're going to talk about what this could mean for, you know, the sports writing community as well. Um, We'll get into some of that with Charles and then with Eric and myself uh, a little bit. First, we have news from Thursday uh, as our Shams Trania first reported. And then as the NBA confirmed, uh, we have some information. The tentative dates for the NBA's return to plan would see players return to their local markets June 15th. Um, then, or sorry, the international players return to market by June 15th. All players return by June 21st. Coronavirus testing would then begin June 22nd with training camps uh, June 30th to July 7th, including travel to Orlando. Uh, the I would be on a July 31st start date. Now, uh, the Raptors are probably the biggest question mark in regards to that because they are across the border and because returning all the players to Toronto and then having them go to the United States may require a double quarantine period and increased risk factors. Uh, We don't have confirmation yet. The belief seems to be that the Raptors will uh, do their camp outside of Toronto on the United States side to save some of those risks. Um, The bigger takeaway that we have specifics on is the league wants to return July 31st. Um, That would set up an eight game reseeding season. It would count as part of the regular season uh the raptors would play eight games and then go into the standard playoff format not a reseeded playoff format the finals would then end in mid-october with the draft and free agency to follow uh eric i think that's most of the the bigger notes here did i miss anything um i don't think so uh the raptors it's gonna be weird like the the weirdest thing to me and Nobody seems to be talking, not nobody, but it hasn't been a big topic of conversation is that teams are going to finish play- having played different number of games. Like I, I know Love it's not to a lose big- out on a playoff spot by half a game because <laughs> yeah, I like, didn't get to play as many. Yeah. Like I think San Antonio's, I think they're at 63 right now, whereas Memphis might be at 66. I'm probably getting the numbers wrong, but it's very realistic that you know, the eighth seed or the ninth seed or, or whatever the permutations are, like it could be affected by not having played one more game or having played uh, one too many games. Who knows? It's just, I, I know it It was going to be imperfect no matter what 
they came up with. And it's just weird to me that uh, I think the teams were between 63 and 67 games going in. So, you know, some teams will end up uh, having played, the Lakers will end up playing 75 games. And I don't know if any of the teams playing 60, who have played 63 offhand are in Orlando. I think at least one is. And they'll end up at 71. And that's just weird. It's you know, like it's it's not what it's meant to be. Uh, yeah. The Raptors having played 64, not too much changes for them. Yeah, not a lot of changes. We don't know the specific schedule. The anticipation is that it'll be, uh, or not anticipation, the NBA said as much, it'll be games from the remaining schedule. Um, but it's not as clear cut once you look at things like, hey, well, Memphis would have been in Toronto's next eight games, but they'll be done their eight games by the time they get to that game. Uh, so still a little bit to figure out there. And then I believe there were four teams projected to come up short. Uh, I We will do a podcast uh, again next week that goes into some of these Uh, specifics a little bit more and some of the Raptors ramifications a little bit more because again uh, we want to give proper space this conversation with Charles um, and we have to just get the news out of the way here Uh, the other thing that is left unsaid from all this and again we'd hope more information comes uh, next week when Adam Silver does media availability and as the league kind of figures all this stuff out and negotiates some finer points with the players union Uh, the players union by the way the team reps will vote on this plan on Friday according to reports. Um, There are a lot of questions left unanswered on the medical side. And the way the league has handled this so far, it's been fairly clear that, um, you know, this is a financially driven decision. And Adam Silver was fond of using the quote that it's the data, not the date. Um, That was someone else's quote originally, but it's been kind of the NBA's party line. Um, Not that Adam Silver has really been doing media availability during during the hiatus here. you know, if there's data suggesting that this is safe, um, they have not shared it yet. I don't know if they will at any point, um, but there are some understandable concerns being expressed in terms of, you know, how do you do this healthily um, and safely? What do you do if a player tests positive, um, you know, both for the player and for the team and the league? Um, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of questions and there's a lot of um, you know, I, I would hope that people on that call push for some some data driven answers or some evidence based answers uh, to those questions. And, and between now and June 15th, when the kind of return to play stuff starts, we have a little bit more clarity on that. Uh, but if you are among the people who are a little uneasy with this uh, relaunch and the plan because of the medical risks and because there are far more important things going on in the world right now, uh, I understand and I hear you, Eric. Is there what's the is there a big unknown for you that you're kind of waiting for the most? Like, do you actually think they're they're going to give us kind of the hey, here's what the medic what the medical data suggests, here's what we think the risk factors are, or, or are we just going to have to assume that you know they're operating as safely as possible? I mean, I think we'll get a watered down version of that, and I think they'll say at any point if we th- before or during if we think this is you know unsafe, we will stop it, uh, either stop the ramp up toward the season or, you know, stop the season as is. Uh, I don't think we're going to get like a ton of honesty in the way, uh, you know, in the way that we'd like. Uh, I, I believe the other day there were 1,200 new COVID cases in Florida. Um, so that's a thing. <laughs> um, uh, Henry Abbott at True Hoop had a really good skeptical post of Adam Silver and the NBA's approach to all of this, which I I recommend from either uh, Wednesday or Tuesday, I'm not sure. Uh, You know, Lee, 
the NBA is smart and they've generally been a forward thinking sports league as far as those things go. I mean, you don't, it's not a high bar to beat out some of the other sports leagues in terms of, you know, pro- being progressive and, uh, and being, you know, showing your data and being intelligent. But look, this is, if it, if there were no money involved and it were just about, you know, crowning a champion, I don't think we'd be playing right now. So, uh, Hopefully they know what they're doing and hopefully they make it as safe as possible. And in, you know, seven, eight weeks, we're in a better place as a society with, uh, well, in many ways, but particularly with COVID-19, that this isn't as big of a risk as it seems right now. But I don't think either of us is in position to say that will be the case. No. And again, we'll uh, on next week's podcast, we'll break down as we get more specifics. We'll break down the Raptors ramifications here a little bit. Uh, Eric also had a post up at the athletic.com slash Raptors today, um, breaking down kind of a refresh of where the Raptors were when we hit pause. Uh, I'll have a column through the weekend and then a piece with Seth part now kind of refreshing some of the analytics uh, of the Raptors chances next week. For all those things, you can go to the athletic.com slash we the six. That's the number six. If you're not a subscriber and you want a free trial or 40 percent off of a subscription right now. Um, but as we mentioned off the top, uh, we had to get the news out of the way. There are much more important conversations to be having right now that we want to give space to coming up in just a minute. We'll have Raptors 905 assistant coach uh, and former Toronto police officer, Charles Kissy uh, coming up for an interview. All right. We're joined now by Charles Kissy, who Charles, your resume is very, very long. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's neat. I didn't know what to introduce you as. Do I introduce you as Raptors 905 assistant coach, general <laughs> manager and head coach of the Guelph Nighthawks of the CBL, uh, you know, former legendary McMaster player, Ryerson women's basketball coach, Brock men's basketball coach, former Raptors mentee coach under Dwayne Casey. There's a, there's a long list of ways I could introduce you here, man. Wow. The check is in the mail. It's on its way. Look out for it. Um, I mean, listen, I, I've been very fortunate to be able to have lots of pretty cool opportunities. That's great. And Eric's on the line with us uh, as well. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you and Eric have met before, have you? No, but he, he coached at Ryerson, so he's good with me. <laughs> Hi, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> um, Charles, right before we came on here, um, the news came down that the G League season is officially canceled. Um, we wanted to have you on today to talk about a lot more um, than basketball. But just for a second here, how was your experience your second year, um, you know, coaching with JAMA with the 905? It was great. It was honestly, it was, um, you know, every year better than the last. And, you know, and that's because you're learning so much more and, and you know, you're just getting a feel of the league. I mean, you guys know the league is, uh, you know, there's so many different things that get thrown at you. It's unpredictable. There's like, you know, it's a grind, as everyone says. It truly is. And um, I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, except when those media, those pesky media members come on the bus for a week. Yeah, this uh, Blake guy followed us around once. It was terrible. It was like, you'd never get that in the NBA. You'd never <laughs> have to deal with that. Um, so, I should get there to find out, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, one day, soon, it's coming. Um, so I, I listed off some of your, your coaching credentials. Again, I, I zoomed through them, but um, you know, you've been coaching for 
uh, close to 10 years now uh, with the Ryerson Women's Program, the Brock Men's Program, uh, now the CEBL, the G League. Um, you had that season under Dwayne Casey in the Mentor Coach Program. You also have a master's in education with a focus on leadership and administration. And, um, you know, the perspective we that we kind of want to get to today or, or you know, I think informs probably how you'll view a lot of what's going on. Uh, you were also a police officer in the Toronto Police Service for 10 years. Is that correct? That is all true. Man, you guys do your homework. I love it. Yeah, yeah I mean, come it, on. I, I, I've known you <laughs> I, a while I now. I, I know no, the story. I expect nothing less. No, I expect nothing less. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wear a lot of different hats. I've worn um, a lot of different hats that provided, obviously, a lot of different, you know, perspectives on on you know what's going on in life in general i think but in you know especially what's going on today so um you know it's it's uh it's unique it's it's also challenging i'll say although it's cool to be able to i don't want to use the term cool i'm i'm grateful to be able to have uh, had all those experiences it's 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 challenging to be honest to be able to you know have to see it um from all of those different perspectives so Char- charles um i, I want to Take you back to when you first saw the incident, uh, the killing of George Floyd and the first few days of protest. Uh, forget formerly being a cop, forget being an NBA coach as a human. What were your, re- what was your initial reaction to those first few days? Yeah. And I, I love that you said the, the human, cause that's the hat I always wear first. Um, the human perspective, you know what? It, it was like probably like most other people. I think my first one was sadness, um, you know, followed by you know anger, followed by frustration, um, and then you know back around to sadness. I mean, we're still in this place where um, you know severe injustices continue to happen, um, and you know, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, it's great that we're, we're having these conversations and it's really fantastic that we're in this, this, you know, I, I, I've been saying this and I'll say it here because I, I really think it's good that we're in this place. You know, we need to be here right now, uh, as difficult as it is, we need to be here. We need to be in this place, whether people want to blame the president or whoever, like we need to be in this place. These conversations needed to happen. Um, the unfortunate thing is that with all of these uh, incidences going back for hundreds of years and and more so in the last century, I would say, um, you know, we have uh, we've had to continue to endure. There's been fighting. There's been, you know, we've had to sort of go back. History is repeating itself. So it's 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 one of those opportunities more than anything. I say we have to be in this place because it presents a pretty great opportunity, I think. What's different about a lot about where we are in our human history is I feel, or at least I want to believe, um, that we're we're a little more open-minded, that we're a little smarter and more educated than we were um, overall. You know, I want to believe that that all people are are far more accepting and far more understanding and far more educated and and far more on the side of you know the, of the reality that we're all human first. Um, so that's that's where I kind of, you know, begin my my framing of all of this is that we're human. So you know, to kind of go back to your question, yeah, you, you know, I felt all of those emotions that I think everyone felt uh, who watched. Well, sorry, I think everyone probably should feel, but most people felt that. I believe that. I think most people felt angry, regardless of who they were. Um, but then I think on the other end, you know, there's there's black people in North America. I don't think it's just a, an American problem that are sort of feeling tired and, and 
you know, want change. And I think there's no better time for us to have it. For sure. And I'm glad you said it's a North American problem and not just an American problem. Um, You know, I have seen that response a little bit um, that it's not, you know, quote unquote, as bad in Canada. And I don't first of all, that this stuff doesn't exist on a spectrum where if you are slightly better than another place, then you're fine with the goal should be zero um, and everyone should be striving toward that. But we also, you know, as a country have a a pretty unsightly history with our indigenous population. Um, You know, there was a protest here on Saturday uh, that was held for um, Regis Korczynski Paquette, who died uh, falling from her 24th floor balcony when when police had been called um, for a a mental health distress call. Um, There was another incident in New Brunswick today that that details are still coming out about um, with an indigenous woman. So I, I hope people have been watching this unfold and localizing it and recognizing that, hey, these protests are happening here, not just in support of George Floyd and what's happening in the United States, but it's a local problem to us as well. Um, Charles, did you did you have an eye on the what was unfolding in the, the Toronto protests on Saturday or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to watch it if, you know, everyone's at home right now. So, you know, your connection to the outside world is is is, you know, the television and media and social media and so on. So, you know, definitely. I mean, yeah. Listen, I think at the end of the day, you know, people are are tired of it, and you know, tired of it being sort of what I sort of deem as sort of the systematic, um, you know, oppression. And we have a systemic race issue, and that's a reality. Let's call it what it is. Um, you know, the United States has a systemic race issue as well. A lot of times, why people think it's not it's not as bad is because we don't often or as often seem to see. Um, you know, the videos of, you know, someone kneeling on, you know, an officer kneeling on a, you know, a black man's neck or those types of things. We don't see that as much. So we feel like it doesn't happen or we feel like, you know, we're sort of exempt from the issues of systemic racism. And I think the other thing we don't understand as well in this country um, is the idea that it's, it's you know, I have said this a few times now that I sort of view it as a as an octopus with tentacles, you know, and you're you know, I don't even know if they have tentacles or whatever they call them, but I'm going to call them tentacles. And uh, and 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 they have different arms. And, and the justice system and the police, for example, are one arm of that system. And you know, our education system is probably not that much better. Um, you know, and that's another arm of the system. And our healthcare system, you know, in North America, and, and obviously very different from the United States as far as the structure. Um, but you know, when you look at some of the the numbers on COVID and who's being affected more. Um, more so than others, it, I think it's pretty telling. And I think, you know, I think we, we do have a, a, a systemic issue. And it's not just to me, and I've said this multiple times now, for me, this is not a police issue. It's a systemic racism issue. And the police, again, are, are, are one arm of this. The police, or more so the justice system, is one arm of it. Um, and that's what needs to be changed. You know, it's not like, you know, eradicating one white officer, for example, is going to change how the police operate. That's not, it's that individual who carries those beliefs, biases, which we'll talk about, I'm sure at some point, um, you know, fears and all of, you know, maybe potentially racism, because I truly believe they're not all racist. I policed for 10 years in Toronto, and I have a lot of white officers who were friends of mine, you know, some who are really good friends of mine, who I know are not racist, don't carry those values, don't, um, are aware of, of their biases. They all have biases. We all do. Let's make that clear. Uh, everyone has them. And I think, you know, some people are more aware of them than others. Some people uh, allow them to to um, sort of manifest themselves in their actions. 
and through their actions and their behaviors and their comments and their jokes and, you know, so on and so forth. And I think, you know, I've worked with a lot of great people who are very much aware of it and, and manage it well and work with a lot of people who don't, you know, and that's the reality. And when you start coupling those things with, you know, bias and fear and racism and all together, you get a lot of bad incidences, you know, you get a lot of, um, you know, and, and, and by the way, there's more, it's not just that, but, you know, you start adding these things up and, and you get some of the actions you, you know, you see with, with George Floyd and, and others, you know, he's not the only one. It's really interesting to see what's happening, sort of th- some of the things that aren't being reported. Like it, it's really, it's been neat. I think, you know, part of me is exhausted from, from all of this, but obviously it's a fight that's worth fighting for all of us. And again, I, I don't think this is a, you know, a, a black versus white problem. It's a systemic problem and we have to change that. And, and I think Masai said it, you know, it's it's time for people like yourselves and, and and all people who have platforms and and white people in positions of power to to speak out against it and 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 stand together. I think the one thing I I learned in in my master's degree tackling some of the issues even with the indigenous communities is is you need allies. Like this is not something that you know black people are going to solve by themselves. For example, this is something that we all have to solve together, um, and that's the only way. Speaking of Maasai, just as a heads up to anyone uh, who might be interested, on TSN on Friday at 7.30, uh, he'll be having a a conversation with Kayla Gray called Walking with Giants Empowered by Sport. Uh, That'll be followed at 9 p.m. by an airing of Giants of Africa. I strongly encourage you to check that out. Uh, Maasai, of course for a very long time has been outspoken on these issues and, um, you know, particularly of late making TV appearances and and an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. Uh, I imagine that conversation with Kayla uh, is going to be really, really helpful, um, both in terms of of mobilizing people to act and helping inform those people who, who maybe still aren't getting it for, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, So again, that's seven 30 on Friday on TSN, Kayla Gray and Masai. Um, Charles, you you haven't been a police officer for a few years now, but you kind of got at something a little bit uh, that I wanted to ask you about. And this is admittedly a broad question. Um, When you talk about, you know, that we need allies and we need to find ways to, um, you know, recognize and minimize these biases that, that might affect policing. I'm curious as to what you think you know, the role of police is in our modern society. And as you see what's happened the last little bit, do you feel like um, there's an overreaching going on beyond what the role of police should be ideally in a, in a community? Yeah. I mean, super broad question, <laughs> but I think, sorry. Yeah. You fix, fix police <laughs> no, reform for us, Charles. No, Listen, I mean, first let me, yeah, exactly. First, let me say, uh, we all have biases. It's not just police that have biases, you know, like of course. everyone, right? So I think that's the that's the first piece to sort of um, understand. And I think trying to identify what ours are and how they, again, how they manifest themselves in our lives and how we live with them, how, you know, again, how, how they play out is important. Um, as far as the role of police, I mean, I think there's an element that we need the police. Every society needs, I believe, some form of of order and and law and you know um i think that's a personal opinion of mine i think we we need it it'd be great to just think that you know we could all just live together and nothing would ever happen and you know if there was no disparity and everybody because again it's not just about crime right but there's other things that influence crime if you start to break down you know how crime works and, and why people commit crimes and so on and so forth it's not just People aren't bad and they just want to commit crimes. There's socioeconomic issues. There's other issues that that play into to that. So 
you know, fixing the police would be to fix the society first, to, you know, fix again, the systemic issue. It's not, again, back to the reiterating that it's not necessarily for me a police problem only. Uh, I think we have problems in our education system. We have problems in our, our post-secondary education systems, right? When you look at our schools and, and who's going and why and who's failing and who's not and, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I think in terms of, of, of the police roles, my, my thought would be that th- they play a significant role in obviously keeping people safe. Um, they play a significant role in, you know, building community and, and, and being a bridge at times and, and, you know, so on and so forth. I think what we have to get away from is sort of the militarization of police, you know, like the scenes of the watching the, the police and the National Guard work together and, you know, shooting on unarmed protesters. Just, you know, there's, it's, it's weird to me because there's places in the world, and this is not good either, right? Talk about biases. There's places in the world where when that happens, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense, you know? Like, um, but you never expect that here. Obviously, it happens here. Um, but, but certainly, and it's not acceptable for any place in the world, in my opinion, either. But, but certainly, you know, in our society, we, we, we say we're a democratic society and, we, you know, everyone's free. And, but that's what people are fighting for. They're not free. They don't feel free. And we shouldn't have a, a, a environment, a, a society where people feel like the police are the oppressors. You know, as, as I worked, again, I can speak on both sides where people I work with that, you know, are doing great work in the community, like unbelievable work in the community, trying to help. My, I myself, you know, coach basketball while I was working sometimes and was helping young men and women um, on both sides of the fence, you know. So I think, you know, there's there's great things happening. And I think there's a balance. It's not just about, you know, putting drug dealers in jail. It's 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 about how do we, you know, integrate these people? Because at the end of the day, it's cops. And I said this to a group, of athletes today is cops are people. They, they wake up, they eat breakfast. They, you know, they, they, um, they put their pants on, take showers, do all that normal stuff that we all do. Um, and then they go to work. Now what they do is, and that's why I'm so big on this bias stuff is that they take their biases, their, their personal opinions, their, all of that stuff with them to work. Like you all do, right? Like we all do. Everybody does it. The difference is they're in a position of power. They're in a position to now with what they believe, um, go out and represent the system, which is powerful. Our system is power. Our governments run the country, you know, um, and, and make the laws. And and that's why, you know, and I, I said to a group today as well, it's like, it's important to vote, you know, get out and be accountable, um, you know, for the change you want to see, you know, be accountable for it. You'll be accountable for your own biases, be accountable for, you know, who you elect and not just for president or prime minister in Canada, but you know, for your mayors, your MPs, all of those people, you need to pay attention to that. You need to know who's getting in there. You need to know what they stand for um, so that you can make change. It's really difficult after the fact, you know, to, to, well, I mean, listen, if we don't, we'll be fighting after the fact all the time. Um, but if we actually invest ourselves in, in, our, in our potential change or the future we want, I think we're better off. I think we have a much better chance to, to live in a, in a society where someone can say to the police, hey, that's completely unacceptable. You know, like I think it was Oklahoma where they fired the officers for not wearing body cams or whatever. Um, you know, it's completely unacceptable. If this is if this is who we're supposed to be, then we got to be it. And someone needs to hold everybody accountable to it. Uh, and again, the police in this situation, but everyone, all parts of the this octopus, as I describe it. 
Charles, in terms of sorry, you account, go ahead, sorry, Eric, let, let me, Yeah, I just want to, in, in terms of that accountability, uh, beyond just voting, uh, if you're a Toronto person, this will hold anywhere, but uh, I know the Toronto side. Uh, the emails for every councillor in the city are readily available. John Tory's email is readily available. Um, the email for the uh, budget committee is available. So you can, um, there have been some resources lately with uh, some form letters that you can send to express specific concerns. Um, but even if you have other concerns or, or just want your voice to be heard, um, all of those emails are available. Some of them might not get back to you in a, in a particularly efficient manner. Manner, um, but those are uh, available to you and your voice can be heard beyond just voting. Um, so Google your your local councillors, your local MP, your local MPP, uh, whoever, all those emails are available to you. Uh, Eric, go ahead. Charles, uh, Blake and I had a piece up earlier in the week at The Athletic where we talked to a few people in the Canadian basketball community and sort of asking them about ideas and, and how Everybody can help with this situation. Uh, I I asked uh, Adrian Griffin uh, what he tells his kids about dealing with the police. I was listening to Dwayne Casey on on Zach Lowe's podcast today, talking about him starting to have those conversations with his uh, with his son and his daughter about what to do if if you're in a situation with police. I'm just curious what did uh, what did your parents tell you if you ever found yourself in in a situation with the police and what made you want to be a, a policeman in the first place? Good question. Um, so a couple of things. One, my parents were, you know, from Ghana, West Africa, um, you know, immigrant families, sort of that typical story. You know, they came here, they worked really hard to, to give their, their children a life and did a fantastic job with it. And I think the big thing was, you know, you, you're, you're respectful. You're respectful to everybody in general. Um, but you know, when you deal with the police, it was that, I mean, grew up in Regent Park and those who are in Toronto, you know, know that community. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a community where the police were not well liked, um, and, and not really well respected. And probably as I was growing up, probably for good reason in many cases. Um, and, and I think, you know, for me, I think there was a few instances I told the story of my brother getting, um, stopped by some undercover officers, like tackled essentially, as I remember it. And I was really young, um, you know, and he was wearing, the, you know, those, uh, I don't know if you guys remember those LA Raider hoodies, you know, or jackets, oh, yeah. you know, those all black the starter jackets. jackets yeah. yeah, those starter jackets. Um, and all I can remember, and I was so, I don't even remember how old it was. I just remember being really young and my sister somehow got involved because she was, you know, he was screaming. And anyway, I think, you know, those are sort of the beginnings of understanding that uh, there's a problem here, you know, as a kid remembering that uh, uh, there's a problem. Nobody likes the police. Um, you know, I remember having some negative interactions, but not like because I was doing anything, just watching them talk to people. And there was actually one police officer. And as I remember this now, funny enough, who, um, I remember at a festival in, uh, in Regent park, um, oh my gosh. And I can't even Roberts, Robert was his first name. I can't remember his last name. Anyway, he, uh, Oh, sorry, my headphone fell out. Sorry. Um, I remember him engaging people and engaging me. Uh, he worked in 51 Division, and I remember him being – he was a black officer, and I remember him being so polite. I remember him treating me so well and so respectful, and I remember seeing him a number of times as I was growing up. Um, and, and not – I mean, we didn't have this great relationship, but we had enough that – I felt like, yeah, this guy's okay, you know? And part of it for me was like, hey, how do we change this? I don't know why. I don't know how. 
but it was like for me, it's like we gotta this this is different. We gotta change this. We gotta give people, you know, a different view um of of our police officers. Cause I know based on the one I met, they're not all bad. Um and how, and what can I do? My brother used to say, my oldest brother used to say, you know, and I know this is a quote from somebody and I should know who said it, but um, you know, don't be part of the problem, be part of the solution. He used to repeat that all the time. I remember my brother Justin saying that. Um, and that that was one of my ways of being part of the solution. It's like, hey, if you get in, you can start to affect change. My brother, I, I would probably then, as I think about it now, credit my, my oldest brother for that, um, you know, trying to affect change, you know, from within. It's hard, harder if you're not on the inside, you know, it's harder if you're not on the inside to to affect change. And And I know not, this is before even understanding the work that was being done from other officers on the inside um, to try and affect change and try and affect the perception of the police. Um, but there's a reality that, you know, some officers, like I said, they put their pants on one leg at a time and some are going to do some, I can't swear on this, so I'm going to say some dumb stuff. You, you sure know? can Swears swear on this want. if you'd well, like. Some people are going to do some stupid shit. Like, that's just the way <laughs> it is. People are going to do stupid shit and they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to, you know, because of whether it's biased, whether it's racist, what, whatever, they're going to do some some dumb stuff. And we have to, for me, it was like, I can do better and I can try to change it. And I can try to, you know, to be different and have people see police as different and have people want to be police officers and maybe start working with and educating. And, you know, as I, I think about it now, I never thought about it that deeply, but I thought about it along those lines. Right. And now you know, as I started to do it, it's like, this is necessary, right? It was necessary. It was necessary to start working with people to change their perceptions, even of me, you know, as a black man in uniform, it was so important. Um, and I think we did. And then some, sure, some other people were like, felt the same way they felt about the same people on the street. But for the most part, the people that I experienced, um, you know, were, were pretty good and understanding and asked questions. And they were pretty open because, I approached them the way my dad would have suggested to be respectful to them, you know? And, and the other thing was to always stand up. Now he was like maybe five, eight and he was one of the fiercest people on the planet. You know, if something was not right, he would have something to say about it. And I think I, you know, have a little bit of that in me. And, and, um, and so that was important for me. It was just important to try to affect change from within, you know, it's hard to be on the outside looking in. I think if you, if you want to do it, you got to get involved and you got to, you know, put your, your name in the hat and sort of try to figure it out. Um, and I think that was one of the the things that sort of stayed with me as I grew up and grew older. And then I, you know, as I finished university, it was the other job. I, I didn't want to do school anymore. If I think of a <laughs> selfish level, I was like, okay, I'm done with school for now. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that it was important just to affect change and try to be a part of it, you know, from within. I think, you know, something that's come up in a couple of your answers now is that is that relationship between the police and the communities they serve. And I thought the point you made a little earlier about demilitarization was a good one. And I think that's an important point from a budget standpoint. When you look at things like, you know, the city of Hamilton maybe having a $250,000 tank or, or, you know, you've seen some of those infographics going around where like this is what it takes to fund one riot police and this is what it takes to fund one essential worker with PPE and things like that, that just you know, that maybe maybe that's not the comparison that that changes anyone's mind, but but it does stand out um, starkly when you look at some of these budgets. And, but I think that the demilitarization also gets to um, you know some of what you're talking about in terms of the relationship between police and the communities they serve. In that, you know, if someone's not 
military geared up, it's it's probably a little easier to accept that they're supposed to be, you know, serving and helping the communities. Um, to that extent, you've now had experience, um, you know, studying education. Uh, you've had experience in policing. You've had experience in coaching. I'm wondering if you see, you know, in the hypothetical, you went back to to the police force at some point, um, you know, we'll say after your lengthy NBA head coaching career. Um <laughs> What what do you think what lessons have you been able to take or would you be able to take from coaching and, and from studying education and kind of take back to that role and how you or other police could approach it? Yeah, that's another great you guys asked the, the the tough questions. I love it. Um I'll answer it a number of ways. I mean, I think ultimately one and the one I've been really stuck on is let's be aware of self first. You know, let's start. Um, you know, that's one thing I would take is like, you know, know your own either racial location, your biases, you, you have to be aware of them and you got to start understanding that they do affect your behavior. They do affect your actions. They do affect, you know, who you're friends with and who you're not friends with, like all of these simple things that you probably take for granted and, or, and, or make excuses for. Um, I think that's one. I think the second piece is, you know, we're human beings, like, you know, ultimately very basic, but we're human. And, and I know it's tough for some people to understand, um, but we're human beings and we have to start treating people like that first. That's got to be the first thing. And it's, you know, it's easier said than done or we wouldn't be in this place, right? Obviously. Um, but I think it's important to see that before you see the athlete, before you see, you know, the guy with the bag of jeans, before you see, you know, whatever it is that you see, you know, it's tough, but you got to do it. We have to challenge ourselves to be better just like we would challenge our athletes to perform better, just like we would challenge our students to achieve higher. You know, I, I, I always think of our, the one I've had numerous great professors. One of my favorites, Denise Armstrong would challenge us to, you know, if you gave an answer, it was like, it wasn't enough. Tell me why, tell me more, tell me, tell me, drill, 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 drill down. And, and, and what it does, the drilling and the, and the reflection you know, after every, at the end of every course, there'd be a reflection, you'd write a paper on what you learned, what you took away and how you're taking it forward. I think reflection daily or weekly or, you know, monthly, whatever you're prepared to do um, is important uh, in that process. So I think, you know, we got to start viewing each other as human beings. We have to start understanding our own biases. We have to start holding people accountable, which is another piece to this puzzle that I think you can easily do in sports. You know, you, you know, someone doesn't do this, you, you cut them or whatever, right? Like there's, you can easily sort of find that parallel. Someone doesn't write uh, paper well enough. I get a bad grade. I get a shitty grade. That's, you know, that's it. But, um, you know, as far as policing and behaviors and, and biases and all that stuff, how are we being held accountable? As far as all these statements that are being made, and I kind of addressed that in this answer, you know, so many organizations are are putting out statements and this again this is my own personal thought and opinion um but to me i kind of i kind of ignore them unless i see something in them that says hey this is what we're actually doing or or hey we don't know what to do um and we welcome opinions thoughts help in any way shape or form um because the hey we stand for uh and denounce racism like you know i think I think if you went back to the 1950s, I'm sure there's people that said the same thing, you know, and nothing changed. So I think we need to start making statements that uh, allow the statement makers to be held accountable. This is what we believe, and this is what we plan on doing or how we plan on doing it. Um, and that way it's out there as something that we can now hold people to. 
Um, because those statements, I, there were some, I'll tell you personally, there are some for like my own personal life, you know, that I saw in our university system, for example. And I'm like, uh, that's not my experience. So if you really feel that way, um, you better reevaluate. You better find a way to reevaluate, put some task force together, do something. But I know I saw some that probably made me just as frustrated as some of the other things I've seen. So, um, you know, I, I think we got to do better as a group. And I think, you know, what I would tell them is let's start treating each other better on a simple level as humans. Let's start being more aware of ourselves and let's start finding ways to hold each other accountable. And and the last piece I would think is speak out. Don't be afraid to, you know, somebody says, makes a comment about, you know, somebody's beard or whatever. I'm making this up. Somebody's skin tone or whatever. Like say something about it, you know, say, say something about it. The analogy I gave today and I've, I've said it twice and it's, it's this the other day, my, my, and you guys pause, stop me if I'm talking too much, but, um, I was told, um, a few uh, last summer, my, my, my lawn was a mess, weeds everywhere. It was overgrown. It, it was a disaster. And now listen, I can't on the best of day, tell a weed, a dandelion from a flower, but I knew this was bad. And so I called somebody and, uh, you know, a lawn care expert. And I said, Hey, listen, you know, this is my situation. This is what's happening. And the guy said to me, He's like, you know, because I was going to, I was ready to just tear out the whole backyard and, and re, you know, blow it up and, and start over. And he said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. But when you, what you do have to do is, you know, get as much grass seed as you can and, and seed your lawn, flood the weeds with seed. And every time it looks like it's going to rain, you flood the weeds with seed. And you know what? You're going to find that over time, it may take a little time, but your grass is going to start to grow greener and healthier than ever before. Um, and that's the analogy I sort of use for our situation now is we need to flood, you know, the hate, the the biases, the racism. We need to flood it with, you know, positivity, accountability, you know, an understanding of self, you know, with with denou- with denouncing it, with with just flat out conversation. There's a lot of great conversations happening and we need to do a job flooding it, flooding out the weeds. Um, you know, suffocating them to the point where, you know, they don't grow or they're so few that they're not even seen, heard, acknowledged, um, you know, and, and we can come out stronger because of it. Charles, uh, you as a police officer, and I know we're running long, so we won't keep you too much longer, uh, but you probably get a little closer look at to how a city works, how a certain area works. And in this conversation, we've said the word systemic, systemic racism, so much. And I think for everyday individuals, that's where it becomes overwhelming. And it's like, oh, what can I do? This like the system is so immense and trying to do one single act seems like you're, you know, you're you're trying to ski up an avalanche or something like that. Um excuse the terrible metaphor. Um uh, but uh Having seen how the how cities operate and how areas operate, what would you encourage just normal individuals, regardless of their backgrounds, to do that makes an actual difference in getting reform and honest change, even if it's in a small way? Yeah, you know, I I, I go with this small, medium, large to keep it really simple. So small, you know, it could be waking up every day and checking yourself, you know, like almost like you would check for life, you know, um, you know, your own stance, your own position, whether it's an affirmation, whether it's, you know, your, your own self. I think it starts with each individual first, 
You know, I think that's the first thing anybody can do, no matter who they are. You know, and I, 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 I say this because I, I think, you know, we think about those biases and we, black people, uh, indigenous people, everyone, we, sometimes we reinforce those things. We reinforce those uh, systemic views or those dis- biases. And and what I mean by that is think about, you know, and, and I'm sure people are listening will be able to think about the time where, you know, they're, you know, as you, you made fun of the the black the dark skin guy or the light skin guy which is a common people joke about that all the time right but what we don't think about is where is that coming from why are we why is it not okay to be dark skin anymore or why is your complexion an, an issue so i think the first thing is checking yourself right i think the the medium is then your once you leave your house okay so once you're outside of your environment in your immediate your friends you know your circle um what can you do there? Can you have difficult conversations? Can you start to, you know, call things out? Can you start to just have conversations? Forget about just the calling thing out. I think that's one piece. If you're in that place and you're able to do it, but it needs to be done. But the other piece is just to have a conversation. I've had a lot of friends, black and white, call me and say, hey, how you doing? You know, like, what's going on? And what are you thinking? Like, these kind of conversations should be had you know, outside of the, you know, this, and it's great that you guys are using the platform for these conversations, but they need to continue to be had um, outside. So when I'm out in the, you know, I'm at the, uh, my friend's house or supermarket or wherever in a different environment outside of my own, um, I need to be having these conversations. I need to be, you know, asking questions. I need to be educating myself on not only what the current issues are, but to the extent that you can, and I think we can all spend a little time on this, is where did, how do we get here? Right, so we start to understand our past to sort of help us move forward, really understand where we are, and then to help us move forward. And the last piece is, and not everyone feels like they're in this place, but listen, I'll say this: we're all leaders, um, and we don't need the highest-profile people all the time to speak. Everyone should be speaking because we're all impacted by this. You know, everyone should be speaking um, and and having a voice and finding a voice and not being afraid to have a voice and where you can and if you know how as you build because i know not everyone's going to be able to do it right away and sort of speak truth to power in that sense but i think it needs to be done so i think as you as we move forward we will as we build more of those conversations and being able to you know in our house you know in our immediate circles and as we move on plant more grass seed that grass will grow it'll strengthen us to move forward to to eventually start to make those incremental changes in our system because it's not going to change overnight but what i think is this is the as great an opportunity as in my life i'm 39 years old so i haven't you know i lived through the riots and i've seen the la riots and seen some other stuff but this is bigger and different than anything i've ever seen and as i studied history you know i won't say it's as big as history but it's it feels different than what i imagined that was like you know it feels different than i imagined that was like and i don't know that because i wasn't there but it feels different to me because i feel like we're in a place where I can walk down the street and someone's not going to throw a rock at me, you know, like, and maybe they want to, but they're not doing it right now. So, you know, I think, I feel like it's, it's, we're in a different place and I feel like it's, it's, you know, think about it as, you know, small, medium and large, and, and maybe you can't do the large, but you can do the small. And as that builds, it will become large and that cycle will continue. You know, um, I don't think it's, I don't think it's any monumental thing because the system was built over time. Um, and it will be destroyed over time. And it will be it will be changed over time. 
Uh, and I think that's what we got to do. And I think the biggest thing we we can't do right now is let this die. You know, I know there was some conversation about letting the, you know, the NBA is going to come back and we're all going to forget about it. COVID will sort of die away and we're all going to forget about it. And we can't forget about it. This is not, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a, an issue that that should disappear unless it's completely gone. And even then we should be talking about it. You know, and that I don't think we'll see, I won't see that in my lifetime. I don't believe. But I believe in my lifetime, 39 years from now, we'll be in a far better place because we had these conversations today, because people started asking questions today, um, because we started holding people accountable today. I mean, you talked about in Toronto, the emails. I hope that they figure out how to get every single one of those emails answered because people need to be heard and not just be able to press send on their email and hope for a reply, but get a reply, even if it's five sentences long and start to see actionable change first be heard that's a great step and then you know start to see some change but i think accountability will be a big piece of that and i think it will come over time you know everyone can do some little things and i get i think the simplest thing right now let's start all looking in the mirror and start figuring out where we actually stand and then start deciding what we're willing to do about it and start taking those steps i I have said this and it's in my i say it in my house all the time and people hate me for it um but if it's important we'll do it you know if it's important to us we'll actually get it done so that that would be my answer. Sorry, long winded, but <laughs> no, it's great, um, and and a great point too uh, that I want to just hammer home. The return to play protocol for the NBA is not a it's not a checkpoint where you know these social justice conversations and these civil rights conversations are over. They've they've got to keep going uh, the way they've been going. Charles, thank you so much for this. This has been this has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys. It was, uh, it was awesome. Really. I was happy to do it. And I, and I'm, thank you for sharing your platform and I appreciate that, uh, that it's happening. And I, and I just, you know, if I was going to say anything for you guys, what, what can you do? Continue to have these conversations, continue to talk about it, continue to understand that it, it exists and it's a way. And I know you guys are, and I know you will. Um, but that's what I would say. Continue to use this platform for all issues because they're important to us. Thank you so Thanks, much, Charles. Charles. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. All right, we're back. Uh, most of our listeners are in and around Toronto. What better way to promote your business than through our show? To advertise on this very show, just go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads. There you can fill out a very simple form and we'll get back to you right away. So go to www.theathletic.com slash podcast ads today. Um, Eric, that was great, man. I'm glad we glad we got Charles on for that. That was a, a really helpful conversation. Yeah, he is you know, a very interesting perspective and he's seen a lot of stuff, both as, you know, a a young black man growing up in Regent Park and as a police officer and as a coach. And, you know, there are a lot of words in there that, you know, we all need to heed. And, uh, you know, he kept on touching on, on checking yourself and, that doesn't seem like enough a lot of the time. And it's not enough. You have to move beyond yourself. And uh, I think that's sort of one of the lessons in in this continually popping up is, uh, and as we tried to hammer home in our story, like, yeah, a lot of us were decided we were not racist, not didn't decide, but like we were content with being not racist. And there has to be a, a way to turn that into actionable change because, you know, just the absence of, you know, being bad isn't, isn't the, the same as being good, but it does start there. It starts with 
you know, realizing the biases you have. And, and he certainly hit that hard and uh, self-awareness as we, you know, both talk about on this podcast in very different ways is, you know, a bit of a, <laughs> a chore a lot of the time and a pain in the ass, but uh, it's necessary. And, you know, it, it was really great of him to come on and share, our, you know, uh, how all of his perspectives and experiences have shaped his his view on what's going on. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the personal side, just speaking for myself, you know, that whole, you know, his small, medium, large thing, I, I think I think where at least I've been tripped up recently is maybe in that medium area. And, you know, as a bit of a, a mea culpa, I guess, you know, I thought and, and I don't know, maybe maybe people will feel differently about this, but I I at least at first thought that, you know, retweeting to try to amplify voices, um, quietly donating, you know, I, I thought that that was doing my part. And, you know, you kind of you kind of realize it. And this has been a, a learning week for a lot of people, I think. And I don't mean learning in the in terms of like, you're learning that racism exists, because you should know that even if it's, you know, not appropriately in the curriculum when it comes to slavery in the United States or um, the indigenous relationships and indigenous genocide here in Canada. Um, you know, you, you should know about that stuff, but it never hurts to learn more. But I mean, learning in terms of how to best use your voice and how to best be a, an ally. And for me, you know, as someone who has a, a Twitter following and a platform with this podcast and the articles, um, you know, that's that's putting my own active voice on that. And, and amplifying voices is certainly uh, important. And you want to give space for those voices and those conversations. Um, but also, you know, putting your own voice on things doesn't hurt um, to that note. Um you know, I've tried to use my own Twitter the last little bit to um, provide, you know, not just angry takes because there's been a there's been a lot of room for that, um, but also resources. And if you go to uh, the story that Eric and I put out together on Wednesday called How Canadian Basketball Leaders Suggest Fighting Racism in New Collective Ways, um, you know, some powerful quotes in there from a few different people. Also, toward the bottom of the story, uh, there are a few links in there. There are some anti-racism educational materials for people who want to learn more about, um, you know, the history of, of racial injustice as well as allyship. Um, social media is obviously always a, a very good tool to, you know, especially if you're trying to back your support with donations. Um, social media has been helpful in guiding those donations where they're most needed as the situations change. Um, and then, you know, there, there are some links within that story and on Twitter. It's pretty easy to find about things like, um, you know, are there evidence based solutions? If not solutions, are there evidence based ways to improve the situation? Um, you know, why does the budget look like it is? Who can I talk to in my city council about that? Um, we provided some links there. And then obviously you can Google and you can social media those things uh, as well. Uh, and, you know, this extends beyond the world as a whole. You know, you can get more granular than that. And I think that's something that, you know, we've had some conversations about it. And there have been some excellent, excellent podcasts um, here at The Athletic with some of our black writers about their own experiences. Um, you know, the into the makeup of our industry is uh, not necessarily representative of uh, certainly not representative of the demographic of the sports we cover and probably not representative of the the world as a whole. Um, there's an excellent podcast over at Yahoo, uh, a conversation between William Liu and Jordan Hales of MLSE uh, about just that, that I recommend. It's something I would love to give more airspace to here at some point, but we're running tight on time here. Um, so check that out and, and check those resources out. Um, continue to use your voice. The, the 
overwhelming takeaway in talking to friends and talking to Canadian basketball leaders in that conversation with Charles um, and obviously just just reading on social media, um, you know, like like we've kind of said, the taglines kind of become it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racism. Um, and then I think especially, you know, you look at a, a city like Toronto and a community like the one around the Raptors. And there was this wonderful moment a, a year ago where the entire you know, the entire Raptors community came together to celebrate the championship. And I don't think we can leave the vulnerable members of that community uh, on their own when, when things aren't as celebratory. So um, try to keep that in mind, try to educate and continue to do what you can um, with your platform or your voice or your money or, or wherever you see fit. Um, and again, a reminder that the uh, Walking with Giants Empowered by Sport special uh, conversation between Kayla Gray and Masai Ujiri 7.30 on Friday on TSN, followed by an airing of Giants of Africa. Strongly recommend checking that out. Um, Masai is worth listening to at all times. Kayla has been doing some incredible work, um, kind of getting the message out and doing the media rounds and being a voice for change and a real leader. Um, Donovan Bennett, Jordan Hales, all, all of those people in our community um, have been doing a great job kind of taking on leadership roles and they're absolutely worth listening to. And then Masai, of course, always worth listening to. Um, sorry, Eric, I, I took up the last of our airspace here, but... Uh, you know, ho- hopefully that that message sticks for people. And I my DMs always open if you if you want more resources or anything like that. Um, sorry, Eric. That's okay. You spoke very eloquently, Blake. I, you know, only wanted to speak to basically say what you just said. So no problem. All right. Well, then we'll wrap it up. Um, like we said off the top, uh, we covered the barest news elements of the NBA's return to play plan, which will be voted on by uh, the team reps from the NBA Players Association on Friday. Uh, We should have more information by next week, hopefully on things like a schedule and how that affects the Raptors, which we can break down on this podcast in a little more detail um, and Raptorize this news a little bit more. Hopefully there's stuff like uh, information on uh, the medical side of things and the non-basketball questions as well. Um, But I won't hold my breath for that by the next time we record. Eric, thanks so much, man. Thank you, Blake. Everybody stay safe out there and try to stay sane. See ya.